Hello, friends, and welcome to our SBT Sunday teachings. My name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin, let's take a moment to appreciate our handsome and wise community gathered here today. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world, to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, and to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Again, welcome to our Sunday teaching. Um, today is a special teaching because we're in the middle of a retreat. The last Sunday of every month, we do an online retreat. It's a day of observance and retreat. And we have been meditating and studying and having some Sangha chat all day long, just having a wonderful, wonderful time. And now we're up to our main teaching of the day. Today, we're going to explore the Buddhist concept of not-self and how it is seen through the secular Buddhist view. So this, um, when I learned this myself, it's kind of wondering where to start with this. This is a big can of worms. When I learned this myself, this teaching, we called it the teachings on no self, that Buddhism asserts that, that no self exists. Uh, nevertheless, this has been challenged, and it's it's quite uh, it's changed quite a bit. And so um, now the this teaching has many different titles. Sometimes we call it no self or no soul or not self or not soul. And I'll explain a little bit about how that all works. So. Um, so traditionally, most Buddhist traditions all teach this idea that the in Buddhism asserts that self doesn't exist, that we're, that we're all empty of of self. But uh, modern scholars scholars have challenged this, and now it seems to be from every tradition, all the modern scholars are really believing that this has been a wrong interpretation. And many of these uh, modern scholars, and they come from all the traditions, from the, the great acclaimed scholars like Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's world famous, Richard Gumbridge, which is one of the great uh, Theravada uh, scholars, uh, from the Mahayana schools, and from Zen. Um, people are leaning more towards uh, this idea of not-self. And it has to do with the Buddhist teachings on what, what are called the five aggregates or the five collections, the five collections of what are the, the general uh, components of a person. And so, um, and so there's been a lot of change in the in understanding exactly what this is. Um, this teaching on, we're going we're gonna to call it not-self. This is the new term. And uh, Stephen Batchelor is equally one of the scholars that's changing. So everybody's going for this idea of no soul to not-self. So, not, uh, not uh, I'm sorry. The scholars are going from the idea of no-self, which I learned in school, 
to the idea of not self. And I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, uh, again, possibly the, or, the origin, it was originally taught as not self, and then it was later changed, and now it's going back to that. All the confusion about this is around the interpretation of, of, of a few terms. And the, and the term in speci specifically is the Pali term Atta, or in Sanskrit, Atma. Now, this word, or and in Jainism, they use the word Jiva, but they all mean the same thing. And it's this word that's related to either self or soul. It kind of has, it kind of, uh, it's hard to discern exactly what, which of the terms it applies. In Vedic or early uh, Hindu belief, and in Jainism, it's asserted that this Atta, Atma or Jiva, is the permanent, unchanging essence of a living being. Often referred to in, in Hindu doctrine as true self. However, you can tell by the definition here, this is what we would term which would what we would terminalize in the West, we would clearly refer, refer to this as a soul, right? This permanent unchanging essence of what human being within all human beings. All Buddhist traditions directly deny the existence of this type of self or soul, this type of permanent unchangeable essence, claiming within humans there is no permanent underlying substance that we could call the self or the soul. Now, um, so in, in modern psychology, the, the current uh, general uh, belief or assertion of what self is, is amazingly similar to that of Buddhism asserting that self is a concept, it's, it's our identity, right? It's conceptual. It's the idea of who we are. And in relation to the words and the terms, I, me, my, right? This is what self is. Oftentimes they'll talk about self being similar to a story that we tell ourselves, a story of who we are and what we are. You know, we have a name, um, but um, so in, in Buddhism asserts, like modern psychology asserts, that this self is a conceptual fabrication that's in constant change. It's, a, it's something that our parents helped establish it when we were just little teeny babies. They gave us a name. They told us about ourselves. We learned we learned what characteristics that that people saw in us that are stronger than others, and we build this identity, this sense of self. They call it selfhood in science and psychology, right? But just like in modern psychology, there there is no substance to it. It's not a permanent underlying substance. It's a conceptual idea of what we are, right? This is the idea of self. But what, we're, what they're talking about in the Vedas and they're talking about in Jainism is clearly much more related to what in the West we call a soul. You know, the, and especially in Jainism, they actually use the word soul. Uh, in Hinduism, sometimes uh, this, this term atta can be translated as self or soul. It kind of goes back and forth between them. Um, but regardless of the, the terminology they give it, when you read the definition of what they're talking about, to me, it's very clear that they're talking about uh, soul. And sometimes I wonder if I'm missing something because the answer seems so clear and I can't understand why other people don't see it, that um, when the Buddha's, this doctrine of no self in Buddhism is really the Buddha's doctrine of no soul.
right? Hinduism, Jainism, most Indian traditions all posit this idea of a soul. And, and this soul is when we pass away, the soul, the identity, unlike Buddhism, this soul carries on and is reborn. And it's you in the next lifetime, right? Or it's you going to heaven or merging with Brahma or in Jainism, the soul is actually seen as a physical substance that's weighed down by karma. And by purification, you release the soul and you, you rise up into the heavens. So the idea of soul is clear within all of the early Indian uh, religions. And, and this is what distinguishes Buddhism more clear than any other thing, that Buddhism is one of the few religions in the world that doesn't believe in a soul. The Buddha said when he examined the, the, himself, when he looked at how the, the true nature of oneself, he could not find anything that matched that description. He could not find any permanent essential essence, physical, that is you, all right? So Buddhism denies that idea of, of soul. Now, so anyways, you can see how confusing all of this is. Now, the confusion really starts much earlier, and it starts with the Buddha. And we, we talked about the Buddha's, um, his uh, 14 uh, topics of, uh, that he was silent about. And uh, let me pull that up so we can take a peek at that. Ah, here we go. The 14 unanswered questions of the Buddha, and they call it the Buddha's golden silence. We talked about this a handful of weeks ago. And, um, and it's quite a fascinating thing. And this is where a lot of confusion about modern Buddhism comes from. Um, so the first two is, is the universe eternal or, or trans, transient? Three and four is, is the universe both eternal and transient or neither eternal or transient? Five and six is, is the Buddha finite or is the universe finite or infinite? infinite? Um, seven and eight, is the universe both finite or infinite or neither finite or infinite? Now, here's where it gets interesting. Nine and ten, is the I, now this is self, this is our identity. Is the I identical with the material body or different from the material body? Again, the Buddha wouldn't answer this question. Eleven and twelve, <coughs> does the Buddha exist after death or perish after death? The Buddha wouldn't answer. Thirteen and fourteen, does the Buddha exist and perish after death, or neither exist nor perish after death. But nine and 10 are the ones we're really looking at today. Is the I identical to the material body or different from the material body? So this is just one more case where the Buddha refused to answer this question. And many people speculate that the Buddha uh, gave this golden silence because either Either answer he gave in, in either direction would lead people into um, an absolute extreme view. And so he thought it was best to not have a view at all, to just remain silent. Now, going along with that, there's another uh, piece that I uncovered from Bhikkhu Bodhi's work that additionally, the Buddha asserted that it is unwise to hold the view either that self exists or that self does not exist. Now, if you notice what he's, what he, he's, not, he's not saying that either one isn't true, he's saying that it's unwise to hold the view. And I would interpret that as he's saying, it's unproductive to have either one of these views. And so it seems like the Buddha here is trying to suspend our judgment on this fact. And, and the idea that it's just not a, that important. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit our practice and lead to awakening. Now, um, 
this didn't stop all the traditions after the time of the Buddha from trying to answer these questions, right? We've talked about this before. Uh, no matter what the Buddha is golden silently silent about, the traditions believe that they need to know the answer to these. So this is where the confusion arises. And the various traditions all have different ideas on what exactly that is. Even in the Tibetan tradition itself, there's traditionally four or five different philosophies and schools of thoughts that have different ideas of what self is and how self exists. In the modern context, um, when I've, when I've uh, been in the audience at His Holiness's uh, teachings on this subject, um, people have gone back and forth with terminology. And I think a lot of times it just gets hung up on terminology. So in my tradition, they started to use expressions like true self and false self, trying to apply uh, which one is which. So yes, and, and what they're trying to do is still justify the, this title that this teaching is called no self, where clearly there is a self, you know, that's undeniable. It's undeniable that we all have an identity, right? Human beings have selfhood. We all have an identity. You know, you're unique from everyone else. When somebody calls your name, you turn your head. We all have a self. So then they have to justify and they say, well, the Buddha can't be wrong. So they have to try to change the argument to try to fit these in. So they talk about a false self, which is an exaggeration of what self actually is. And it's an exaggeration believing that your identity is more than identity, that it's more like a soul. It's permanent and substantial, right? This is in Tibetan Buddhism is considered false self. True self is what we explained before of this conceptual idea of who you are. It's an ethereal identity. Tenzin Tarpa, I know, I know these things. I have my memories, I have my experiences. I've built this identity of who and what I am, it's real. It's conceptual, but it's real. There's no doubt about that. I've had these experiences, these thoughts I have about myself, these thoughts that others have about me, they're real. So we're not talking about what's real and what's not. We're just talking about the essence of that. So there is no, there is no substantial essence to identity. Again, it's an idea. So, in Tibetan Buddhism, that's how they came upon how to fix the problem, because all of the traditions have a problem, every single one of them, that this teaching the way it's shared doesn't work. And so they, they divided up between false self, uh, false self and true self. And again, getting back to my point, to me, it seems so clear, and I don't know why other people don't see it. To me, it's clearly a distinction between soul and self. There is no permanent underlying substantial essence or soul, but there is a self, which is conceptual ethereal, right? Okay, I'm hoping that that helps a little bit. It's a bit of a complicated thing, but I'm, my job is to clarify it. And I have some other things here to, uh, to help clarify it further with everybody. Um, a, um okay how about if we take a break for any questions um how do you does anybody have any questions first of all before i start asking questions what do you think it's a tough topic i hope i was clear darcy how does that coincide with the um the scientific i don't know theory is the right word but that yeah. all energy is is constant it's 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 all energy doesn't die it's just it was here from the beginning and it just becomes something else 
Well, I think that that's farther down the rabbit hole. Okay. We're not that deep at this level. At okay. this level, we're talking about more practical things of just the the components of you. And we're going to, we're, in a second, we're going to talk about the five aggregates, the, the Buddhist okay. teachings on how to find that. So we're talking about, you know, our identity, our self is clearly real. We all have one. You know, we all have a personality. We all have an identity. And so, um, so that's a, a real thing. So we'll get to that. We're going to get to that next week. I'll save by that the, then. Yeah, by the I'll way, this, this class is it. a... <laughs> okay. This class is a cliffhanger. I have to warn everybody ahead of time. Today we're talking about what is not self and a little bit about what self is. Next Sunday, we're going to really dig into, well, exactly what is self? Exactly who am I? So it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. Okay, Neil. I probably forgot what you said about this, but if there's no soul, no sale, what goes forward for rebirth? That's a great question. So we're going to answer that fully next week, but I'll talk about it here a little bit. And it's, well, we talked about Hinduism believing, they use the word reincarnation in Hinduism because they believe it's this self or soul, and I really think we should be using the word soul, is re, reincarnated into the next life. It's Neil in the next lifetime, where Buddhism is quite different. Buddhism believes it's not you that's reincarnated, that's reborn. We use the word reborn in Buddhism. It's only the momentum or flavor of your life that moves on. Many would say this is your karmic stream that, that moves forward into the next life. The Dalai Lama calls it a very subtle mind, aspect of, a very, of the very subtle mind. So it's just a flavor of our life that moves forward. Neil, sadly, is going to pass away, meaning your identity, yourself, does not transmigrate. Now, as a secular group, a lot of people here don't believe in rebirth. We're fine with that. We're talking about Buddhist views on the subject. We're not, we're not sharing with everybody what they believe, what they should believe. We leave belief up to you. But in Buddhist doctrine, they do talk about rebirth. So uh, that's the big difference between uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism, is that they, Hinduism and Jainism believe that the soul is reincarnated into the next life or goes to heaven, where Buddhism says, no, the self doesn't transmigrate, it passes away. Only the karmic stream moves forward. The momentum of this life, the flavor of this life moves forward. I hope that's helpful. Uh, Lisa, no, this isn't non-dual. Uh, to be honest, I, I, I don't think Buddhism generally is non-dual. Really, non-dual gets into tantric. Uh, and 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 it does it does because Anandul is a, a Hindu uh, concept that comes from the Vedanta and it trickles into Buddhism later. Uh, but the Buddha, I don't think, ever entertained the idea of non-dual. But it really depends a lot on what you mean by non-dual. Like some might say, if you see the world in spectrums, with with uh, extremes or duality at both sides but everything are spectrums, that might sound non-dual, but I don't think it's technically non-dual. In, in Buddhism, there is always separation between object and subject. That, that just never goes away. David. Did I understand you right there, Harper, that next week you're going to give us the definitive clear answer of what is reborn? Yes, and who you are. Who am I? I don't know. I don't know who the hell you are. I'm trying to figure out who I am. Yeah, next week is the definitive. Uh, you know, and of course, definitive compared to, you know, whose opinion, whose view. I'm going to give you one. But I think it's, I think it's a pretty good one. But like, like always, I, I try to share all the various uh, 
views and let you for yourselves to make up your mind. You're all smart enough to figure it out for yourselves, right? Oh, hi, Chantal, good to see you. Uh, yeah, so uh, I have a couple questions for y'all. I'm starting to talk like a New Orleanian. How do you feel about the rejection of soul in Buddhism? Does it make you uncomfortable? You know, that's a, that's a big thing for most, most of us growing up in the West. <laughs> We're all convinced we got one, right? And we want to purify it and not damage it and protect it at all costs. Is anybody, does anybody find that uncomfortable? The idea of not having a soul? I don't, I think, I was surprised that I didn't find it as uncomfortable as I thought I would. What's harder for me than the not having a soul thing is the no universal consciousness part. That was harder Uh, for me than the no soul. That's cool. That's cool. Pamela? Yeah, I actually, I actually, believe it or not, find it more comforting than um, the actual Christianity thing where I'm stuck forever being the same person forever in the same spot. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of like it. You know, the Jains have a really interesting thought. They see the, the soul as something physical, and they also see karma as physical, as an ink gooey gunk that sticks to the soul and stops the soul from floating up into the heavens. Isn't that weird? Kind of all kind of real stuff. Sanpo. Sorry, I had trouble there getting the mouse to move. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I probably at some point did have a feeling that a soul existed. Now I'm, I get that really the self, it's the self and maybe it's about, you know, a collection of selves that come together, you know, individuals that come together that make the difference, um, rather than being a collection of souls. You know, sometimes as I say, you know, a collection of souls, maybe it's more a collection of selves. You know, it's more important. And Wendy talks about her child passed away and she finds comfort in believing that the soul lives on. And I agree, that would be very comforting. And also the idea of heaven. That imagine when if if children if their parents passed away and you could look to those children and tell them, don't worry, they're in a beautiful place in the sky. And those are very very comforting thoughts. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. Um, Dolkar, Kar. So this is a topic I've thought about an awful lot, and. Uh... And I'm not exactly sure how I feel about the idea, but the one thing I, I think I've totally bought into is, is that I'm all into impermanence. So I can't even imagine how you could have a permanent being there. It, it, you know, no matter what, we're continually changing. And so even if you wanted to believe there's a continuation of the soul, I'd have to believe the soul was impermanent and changing. So, you know, that's, that part of it makes a whole lot of sense to me that there isn't a entity there. Beautifully said. And, uh, and we're going to actually get into that right now in our next, uh, our second part of the teachings in the five aggregates. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Thank you. Ursula? Yeah, just quickly. I mean, I've just been reading about the, the concept of not, not self today and was utterly confused. <laughs> and um, so it's really interesting because it seems it seems very easy now. It's, it's, oh. there's, no, there's no soul, but there is a self, even though the self is a construct, which is obviously, you know, can, I can accept that quite easily. I just can't accept that there's no self because that's really tricky, you know. Exactly. Um, so anyway, so yes, what I, was really cool. Thank you. Ah, so my job is done. I, my whole point was to try to clarify it. One of the things in a secular group like ours, by offering different views, you worry, am I making it overly complicated by doing that? But it's really important to know the views because I don't want to tell you what to think, what to believe and what to do. I want to give you the information so you yourself can decide. 
because I don't know if I'm right. I think I'm doing pretty good, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm not arrogant enough to say that I have it down. Here's another thought. So I talked to you about the Tibetan Buddhist uh, view. Now, my school, the Gelug school, they didn't come to their final view of the true nature of, of oneself until Tsongkhapa in the fifth, sixth century. So does that mean for 2,000 years, Buddhism was wrong until Sankapa straightened it out for everybody. There, throughout, his, throughout Buddhist history, there's been many schools that, that rose up and existed for hundreds of years, and finally people uh, discounted them. They're the Yogacara school, believing that nothing at all exists. It's all a play of the mind, much more like a Hindu belief, right? So... It's, you know, it's, it's interesting. And now we have these scholars, I talked to, I told you about all of these, uh, Ajahn uh, Sumato is another one. All of the prominent scholars all are agreeing upon this idea of teaching not self. And we, I'm going to explain that more in our, in our next thing, including Stephen Batchelor, even the secular Buddhists are on board. Now, does that mean for the last 2,600 years, nobody got Buddhism, and finally, we're saving the day. You know, we have to be careful in what we believe in. We have to be cautious and remain agnostic, you know. Donna? You're muted, dear. I know, I was trying to get unmuted. Um, I need to keep changing, so I, I don't want a soul. I don't want one, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> But Buddha, to answer your question, does Buddha is does Buddhism have a self that keeps changing? Well, that's the idea of self. Self is a is a concept. It's a dynamic process in a constant state of change. All your experiences, all the things you do, your identity, yourself is quite different now than it was when you were a teenager, isn't it? And the same would go for the whole idea of everything. Buddha. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the idea of Buddhism, it kind of plays into more the way we see the world. And I'm going to explain that right now to everybody. So without further ado, let's continue. So the second part, I was the um, I want to teach on this topic of. Uh, Neil, do you hear that bleed through? Is that coming from my side? OK, I think we're OK. And we'll lower a few people's hands. Okay. Um, nevertheless, um, this leads us to the Buddhist teachings of the five aggregates. Now, again, traditionally, this is within this idea of no self. And it's quite fascinating that this is where uh, the different opinions uh, come in. So, the uh, the Buddha added some clarification with his teachings uh, on on no self by adding this teaching on the five aggregates. The aggregates are also called the skandhas. Um, however, confusion in what the teaching actually asserts persists: no self or not self. The five aggregates aren't illustrated. Aren't, uh, uh, some uh, uh, assert that the five aggregates aren't illustrating what we are, but instead illustrating what we are not. That these five aspects of the body and mind are not self. I'd like to read that again. And boy, is that a big difference, huh? So in, in the past, when I was in school, they taught us the five aggregates uh, uh, illustrated and outlined the components of a human being, what we are. But now all the modern scholars are kind of together on this. They're saying that it's been interpreted wrong. The five aggregates are telling us what we are not, what aspects are not the self. And let's put it on the screen to clarify this for y'all. So these are the five aggregates. Now I'm going to blow it up because it's a bit small. And so 
There's one aggregate of body and the rest are aggregates of mind. Some of you are familiar with this. Uh, this is a new a table that I've created of the five aggregates that's going to be for, for SBT. I wanted to simplify it because because the five aggregates list is usually uh, uncomprehensible to regular human beings. It's very strange the way they lay it out. So I wanted to simplify it and I wanted to uh, make it more self-understood, self self-explanatory. So let's start with the first one, which is form. So in a human body, that would be a human being, that would be our bodies. Uh, a being's physical body and also phenomena of the physical world. So they mean, uh, so the five aggregates are supposed to represent, let alone an individual, but all phenomena in the known world. And so form is a rock, right, or your body. Now, the next four are all related to mind. Number two is feeling. The aspect of the mind that experiences phenomena as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Sometimes they refer to this one as sensation. But the thing about it is feeling and sensation here is not about emotion. And the other important thing to know that these aspects that we're going to talk about with the mind are almost, we're almost unaware of. These all happen so quickly when our senses beat an object that we're not aware of them. They're, they're very foundational in our consciousness. This isn't you deciding which, uh, which, which milkshake to buy. This is much, much, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, primordial. This is more core, basic, uh, um, mental uh, af uh, aspects that happen very, very quickly, so fast you're not aware of it. So this idea of feeling, your eye can make contact with an object. Even before you're aware of it, your mind is discerning whether that's, that object is something pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, whether you like it, dislike it, or don't care about it, right? So keep that in mind that these come in really quickly. Number three is perception. The aspect of the mind that identifies and labels phenomena and their attributes, discerning them as unique and distinct from others. Again, this happens so quickly, you're not even aware of it. You look at the you look at the table. You see a salt shaker. Your mind has already perceived what it is. It knows the label for it. It's all there, right? It sees that shaker separate from all the other objects on the table. That's so often this is called discernment, but I like the word perception here. Number four is one of the more challenging ones: mental formation. And in a simple way, it's the aspect of the mind responsible for concepts, thoughts, intentions, and volitions. This could be called uh, uh, mental activity, they sometimes call it, but this is uh, the, the working minds kind of world. And lastly, we have number five, consciousness. Let me see if I can move this up a little. Here we go pertaining to sense consciousnesses, right? Our senses, eye, ear, nose, mouth, pertaining to sense consciousnesses that arise from contact between a sense organ and its object. This also includes mental sense consciousness, which possesses the capacity to think, cognize, conceptualize, contrast, and compare, including introspection, memory, and vital, the, its vital role of interpreting what the various sense consciousnesses experience. Isn't that fascinating? So mainly when they talk about this consciousness, they're talking about the eye makes contact with an object, and from that, eye consciousness is created. When the ear hears a sound, ear, ear consciousness is created. When the nose smells something, nose consciousness is created. Taste consciousness is created. Tactile consciousness is created, 
right? That's what they're talking about here with this kind of consciousness. Now, this type of consciousness does not address the questions that you're about to ask me about what part is going to be reincarnated. This isn't that. This consciousness here, the Buddha claimed, these are contingent on the arising of different phenomena, causes and conditions. That's how these are created and they're in permanence. And these types of consciousness, of course, will all pass away when we pass away. So these are the five aggregates. Now getting back to that million dollar question, and it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Is the Buddha talking about the ingredients of a human being? Is, does this illustrate what a human being is? Now, that's what I was taught in the monastery. And I was also taught nothing else exists but what's here on this page right now. There is no other pieces, parts anywhere. This is it. And if it's not here, it doesn't exist. That's what I learned in the monastery. The new thought by scholars is that, and, 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 it, and it's, it's, uh, it's held up by the Buddha's teachings on it itself, because the Buddha talks about that these components are not self. So the Buddha's going through this list, and the Buddha says, these are the five main aspects of us. These five things we often would think about, that's who and what we are, right? But the Buddha goes through these and talks about them to point out that form of being's physical body and also phenomena in the world, there, that is not self, right? So we go from no self, right? That self isn't on this list, so there is no self, to the teachings of not self, that there is a self, but it does not exist in any of these five aggregates. I hope you're following me on this one. I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring as much clarity as I can, feeling this aspect of the mind that apprehends the idea of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There is no self within that. Perception, there is no self there. Mental formation, there's no self there. Consciousness, there is no self. Now, when the Buddhist is not self, it implies that there is a self. He's just saying it doesn't exist within these. And the Buddha insists that it's through clinging on to these five aggregates that we are, remain in samsara, right? This is where a great deal of our suffering comes from. It's the that ignorance that believes that you, uh, you there's, some, there's some essential aspect of ourselves within these that is who we are. That's what the Buddha is teaching. And I think, I think they have it right. I think, uh, in my opinion, I think the modern scholars have it right. It seems to fix this whole problem that's been going on for thousands of years of what the Buddha meant by this. This seems to really uh, have fixed it. And, uh, and I want to talk about this more. Does anybody have any questions about the five aggregates while they're up here? I'm sure there's a million. Chantel. Papa, I'd like to understand where the subconscious mind fits in with all of this. And then all, also metacognition, like thinking about thought. <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily think that this actually applies to those. These can be uh, very much subconscious. Uh, most of the time, you're not aware of, of this mechanism. When we look at this, it's really the mechanism of how our cognition works, right? The form, we see an object. The first thing comes to mind is how we feel about it and then discerning properties of it and then thoughts about the object, right? That's kind of how they all, they all come in. And so, but I don't think that this lesson really gets into either one of those topics. I think, uh, yeah, because these are just these are just an example. The human the the human being is made up of 
many more things than just these five components. And so that's the main thing here that, uh, that that's the takeaway is that the five aggregates are just an example that the Buddha gives us of objects that aren't, that are not self. But, but modern scholars are saying that that this does not negate, the Buddha's not saying there isn't other aspects of us, including a self. He's just saying the self doesn't exist in these five things. And by clinging to that idea, clinging to the idea that this body is you, it creates great suffering. Is that helpful? David? Yeah, I mean, I can see the, the argument that um self doesn't exist any of these in any of these uh, five aggregates but all of these five aggregates are seems to be are prerequisite to self um so for example if you didn't have any form then you wouldn't have a self and right the right, way right through them so there's an interrelationship between the five aggregates and self as far as i can see it's just to express itself in, the, in these, it's more the other way around. Uh, brilliant, David, and, and you bring up a, a brilliant point. I was going to address this next week, but I'll, I'll go ahead and do it now. That um, You know, when we try to understand things, whether it's in science or Buddhism or whatever, uh, human beings do it in a certain way. We break things down into components. We tear them apart. We figure out how the little pieces parts work. And that helps us understand the larger organism. But a problem occurs when we lose sight of the larger organism. When we break ourselves down to, like in, in Buddhism, they'll say, well, what you actually are is you are that self and you're not these things. So Sankapa had a lot to say about this. Sankapa said, you go through the deconstruction process until you get to the base level but the job is not done there. Now you have to turn around and rebuild until you get to a point of balance, let's say between the two. Because yes, you can, you can dissect it and say, okay, out of all of these things, what I really think of me is this thing called self. But like you said, self doesn't exist without form, without feelings. It is one unit, right? So, we have to be careful in how we and how we discern that we don't want to destroy all of it we're not just a self self doesn't exist without these so you're absolutely right thank you sir Chantal did you have another question or can we put your hand on maybe Neil can uh, take care of that sorry Tarpa and just in terms of that I'm wondering if we can see self uh, or these five uh, aggregates as a container of self. Um, containing I'm going to talk about that in one second. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, just give me one second. I have an example for us. Scott, would you like to share? Um, yeah. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm being especially slow today, but um, I'm not quite sure <laughs> I understand what you're saying. David partially asked my question. My yeah. initial understanding from my Theravada days was that um, I is the product of these aggregates, not self. And that uh, the I is the false construct. And that by removing the deep, well, going through depersonalization process, one becomes uh, what one truly is, which is not self. I think that, well, that's not the main Theravada view. And so, uh, again, this was going to be for next week, but I'll share it a little bit now. The, all the traditions posit roughly the same thing, that the, uh, the self is dependent upon the body and mind for its existence. The self isn't the mind, it isn't the body, but it exists independent upon those things. It arises from them. So that's the that's the core belief of Theravada as well as Mahayana. But now, if they have a more traditional view, maybe they do follow this view of no self. 
and they believe that the object of practice is to get rid of the self. Um, but that's, uh, I, probably some schools believe that, but most traditions don't. Most traditions accept the fact that somehow there is a self. There is an agent of, of, of karmic creation, of karmic experience. And then each tradition tries to figure out how they can interwove that with the, with the teachings of no self and not step on the Buddha's toes. Okay, it's, give me the natural version of what you're saying, what your perspective is. Oh, that um, ultimately, the, all of these things are dependent on each other. But ultimately, what we are is, uh, what you think of yourself is that concept of, of self. And it's dependent upon these things, but these things are not you. You know, the the body, it's it's your body, but you're not, the body isn't you. The mind isn't you. You're, you're, you're this... Um, you're this conceptual concept that's, that arises from those that you've created and the people around you have helped create. And we're, we're going to talk a lot about that next week, so I'm going to have to ask you to be patient. <clears throat> Jennifer? I, I think what I don't understand is, okay, even if you can accept this, you know, that this isn't you and that you're, everything is always constantly changing and you have this conceptual self, even if you come to, I say, like, once you realize that that's one of the true signs of awakening, but even if you come to a total acceptance and realization of that, I, you're never going to lose your concept of self, right? You're not also not going to know who your children are or what you've done in the past. And in this no. world, you're still going to have that identity, correct? That's right. There's absolutely no reason to get rid of the identity. Things in the world aren't the problem. It's our relationship to the things. Self is not a problem. It's our relationship to the self. It's understanding the true nature of self that awakens us, not getting rid of the self. Buddhas have a self. Bodhisattvas have a self. It's impossible to get rid of yourself. <coughs> Tashi, it'll have to be a short one. I have to continue. You're muted. So does that mean like our body is like a vehicle? <clears throat> body and mind are a vehicle. You could you could say that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I have something else I wanted to share with everybody. Where am I? Here I am. Okay. Hey, maybe I will spotlight my. I won't need to, it'll be on the video. Okay, I have a little game we want to play. I wanted to give you guys an example here. So, <clears throat> the Buddha, when he taught the five aggregates, he often called them the five bundles or the five heaps. Heaps meaning piles. And he'd call them the heaps of clinging. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to show you how the Buddha, how it said the Buddha first taught this. The Buddha took some grains and he heaped up five piles of grains to demonstrate this. There's three, there's four. This is basmati, by the way. This is five and it's vegan, don't worry. And I'll put the other one up here at the top. Okay, I don't know if that shows up really good, but we have five piles of grain here. This is how the Buddha taught it. And he taught it like this and in piles because he wanted to make very clear to everybody the composite nature of each one of the aggregates. We have form, we have feeling, we have perception, we have mental functions. Uh, and we have consciousness. And the Buddha wanted to, to, to show that each one, when we talk about aggregates, we're talking about components. Aggregates are many bits and pieces, collection, right? So this first one, a form, this is a collection of things that makes up our form. Now that's kind of easy to understand, right? We have a body, we got a whole bunch of pieces parts. We got ears, we got nose, we got eyes, we got all kinds of pieces parts, right? And there's really no one part that's 
that's more important than the others. Like some of us might say, well, out of everything, what I am is my brain. That's the most important. But the brain doesn't function without lungs, without a heart, without blood, without bone. In the same way, this is how the aggregates function, right? They're all dependent. And so we have this lovely pile here called form at the top. Okay, I got nice piles going. This one up here is called, this one up here is called form, right? And that's the body. And now we look through it and we find all these different pieces, parts. there's a whole bunch of them. But what I don't find is any essential essence that is form, is the body. There's no one, there's no magic grain of rice here that stands out as a yellow golden grain of rice that is the body. They're all equal. All of these different grains are all equal. And it's a collection. This is the, bo this is the body. This is form. It's a collection, right? There is no essence and there is no, there is no me in it. There's a heart, there's bone, there's liver. I'm looking at all the parts, but there is no me in that, right? Okay, the next one we're looking at, feeling. Feelings are made up of all kinds. This, this uh, thing of uh, how we feel about these things, there's all kinds of play going on, causes and conditions, not just physical parts, but causes and conditions, past experiences of what you've liked and what you didn't like. These work through our mental factors. Uh, culturally, you know, we like some cultures like certain things that other cultures don't. So there's a lot going on here. It's not simply your choice of what you like. And there's so many pieces, parts, but guess what? There's no golden one grain of rice here that is feeling. We're moving to perception. Perception is our ability to discern and to to notice things, to label things, to understand things. A lot of mental parts going on there, aren't there? Tons and tons of mental things going on there. And guess what? I'm not seeing a golden piece of rice that is the essence of that. There is none. There, it's an equal collection, right? And now we're moving down here to mental, mental factors, men, mental functions. And again, there's so many mental functions, volitions, attention, mindfulness. There's uh, all of our benevolent qualities. They're all there, but guess what? No golden yellow one piece of rice that is that thing. There is none. And also, I'm not finding any self in any of these, are you? Are you paying attention? Last one, consciousness. There's many consciousnesses. We have the five main consciousnesses of the, of the sense organs, and we have mental consciousness, which is the mind uh, uh, engaging with and interacting with its own phenomena, your inner, inner world of thoughts and concepts and memories and all of those things. Many, many, many pieces, parts. Guess what? No golden grain of rice there, right? And no self. This is how the Buddha taught this. Now, these are all collections, aren't they? When we say aggregates, we mean collections. They're all collections. And guess what? Together as a human being, it's all collections. Guess what? Your identity is a collection. You might say, oh, no, my identity is me. Your identity is a collection of memories. It's a collection of thoughts, of beliefs, of theories. That's, that's what it is. Our self changes when we're around different people. They're all collections. This is how the Buddha taught the five aggregates. What do you guys think? Is that a neat, a neat way to share with you? Yeah, maybe the Buddha was on something. He's a pretty good teacher. Okay, so, and that'll all go in the steamer after I'm done. I'm going to eat the aggregates because I'm a cannibal. So, this is what we're talking about, that everything exists in this, in these states of collections. We call it dependent origination, right? Interdependence. Things are not things. Things are collections of things. And this gets into the really heavy topics of emptiness. And, and the idea is that things, all things, don't have an essential aspect that makes them that thing. We all kind of think there is, right? One example that we have is, uh, 
we're uh, let's say we're gonna we're gonna build let's say we're gonna build a car a motor car, right? And we got all the parts. Um, are all the parts so all the parts are set up on the ground and they're ready to go? Would you say all those parts laying on the ground are a, are a car? Ah, good. I got a couple of head nods. Of course not, right? Okay, so now let's let's take the chassis, the frame. Let's put a couple wheels on it. Let's put four wheels on it. Does that make it a car? I mean, four wheels on a bunch of metal, that could be a cart, right? That could be a giant skateboard for somebody. So now let's keep adding pieces parts. Let's add a steering wheel. Let's add a seat. When can you call it car? And I want an answer. I don't know. Does a, does a broken car not, is a broken car not a car? That's true. That's true. When? Now, now imagine building it. When can you call it car? I mean, we could say it's going to be a car throughout the whole thing, but when can we actually call it car? Which part is that essential essence that makes it car? Yeah, nobody's answering. There isn't one. Right? There is no one part. Car is a collection of things. This is the idea that Buddhism has about things aren't, somehow in the back of our minds, we think that there's something in things that make them them, especially human beings. We think that there's this soul or this essential self that makes us up. And some might argue, well, maybe DNA is that which Buddhism long denied. But when you think about that, DNA also is, it's essential, but it's not a single essential thing. DNA doesn't exist without the parts to go with it. So this is what we're talking about. All of these components of what we are are all collections, including the self. And they're all together. They say that they're all held together by a karmic stream. I say they're all held together by flesh and bone, but that's the idea. And then next week we're going to talk about what exactly does that mean? Now that we figured out exactly what we're not, which is going to drive you all crazy all week long, next week we're going to get into the question of, you know, now that we've deconstructed, what exactly are we? What can we say we are, right? <laughs> Pretty neat. Any questions? Oh, everybody's got their hands up. <clears throat> yes, Darcy. You're, you're just going to leave us hanging now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's our, we're already over. I was planning on trying to teach both in one day and I just realized there was no way I could. <laughs> so yeah, this is our, one of our first one of our first uh, cliffhangers. I've been watching too much uh, series TV. <laughs> I just thank you very much for not doing two in the same day because my brain's already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I did tell you a bit about what self is in this class, you know, but next week's going to be a great one. Carol, did you have a question? Oh, okay, just put your hand up. Oh, Carlos. Yeah one, yeah, one question about the aggregates uh, mm, or the self, I'm not sure. Uh, does Buddhism believe that uh, the self is something separate from the physical world or identical or does not answer or? Um, it kind of exists in both. It's conceptual, first of all. Now, uh, it's important to understand that in Buddhism, just because something's conceptual doesn't mean it's not real. Things like marriage are conceptual, but they're very real. And Tsongkhapa would say what some of the things that, that you, can, uh, you can assert that it's real is because it can make real life changes. 
Marriage can make profound changes in people's lives. It can affect the physical world. Your identity can affect the physical world. And then your identity is also, though it's not the body, it is tied to it. When I see you on the screen, I know that you're Carlos. So the way you look is part of your identity. So it kind of, it kind of runs through all the things that we do. And Carlos's next question, who is it that eats the paella? I must know next week. Any other questions? Oh, glad you made it, Ian. Oh, Jennifer, do you have a question? Or are you waving by? Okay, everybody. I thought everybody had a question. And then everybody's, everybody's <laughs> waving by. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, good. Well, we're running late, so let's uh, let's end it there, and um, uh, let's end with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy. May all be prosperous. May all be well. May all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality which is awakening. You'll have to wait till next week to realize your true nature. Thanks everybody for coming. Remember that the SBT community was created for one purpose, to support you, the practitioner. For those of you engaged in our retreat, our next event is our purification ceremony, which is um, actually in just about 20 minutes. We ran a little late on our teaching. So I hope everybody can make it back for that. Thanks everybody for coming and participating. It was really fun. See you later. See you in 20 minutes. Thank bye you, Tarpa. Bye bye. Thank you, Tarpa. Thank you. Anytime. Bye bye.